welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that have happened in history. I'm your host for this evening, Amelia Edwards, and with me, as ever, is Barnaby King, my co-host. This evening, eh? Yes, well, I was letting away... I was giving away a trade secret there. Oh, I see. It's not that That Time When has become, you know... A relaxing, jazzy evening show. <laughs> hey, well, pull up a chair and we'll talk about history. Um, oh, what is that show? Is that the... Are you thinking about the Lenny Bruce one? Yes. You thinking about the Playboy Mansion yes, TV this show? Yes, the Playboy Mansion TV show of history. <laughs> oh, that would be great, though. It would be great, but that is also a joke very much for us. I don't know of anyone else who knows about the Playboy Mansion TV show... <laughs> And probably don't know many people who know about Lenny Bruce either. Probs not, but... He could probably be an episode, you know. Ooh. Yeah. Well, shh. Yeah, I know. Shh, shh, shh. It's a secret between us and everyone who has watched Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, last week, you told us all about the hottest king of France. Oh, yeah. Charles, Charles VI. VI. Ch- otherwise known as Charles the Mad. And the whole way through, I was going... Sounds like Richard II. Sounds like Richard II. Sounds like Richard II. Because I studied Richard II at uni. And you didn't say a word. I did not, because I was keeping it to myself. Yeah, that makes sense. But you know what I hadn't realised? What? They ruled at the same time. Yeah, they did. Yay! Yay! Good old Hundred Years' War. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing, because I knew Richard II, very Hundred Years' War. Yeah. But also, the Hundred Years' War lasts... A lot of kings. Yeah, this is true. So... I mean, we we get into a list of Henrys after Richard, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gotta love a Henry. Yeah. And then we get into the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, which is its own thing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But if I remember correctly from what you've told me, it's kind of Richard II's fault, or at least happened because of him. Yeah, sort of-ish. Which I'll explain at the end of this. Cool. So basically, I wanted to talk about another boy king yay who was accused of being insane oh nice or gay oh well that's an alternative right interpretation right there (laughs) are we talking of an era where that's kind of the same thing or no no okay i'm not sure if that's ever been the same thing i guess there's been some overlap but no i mean it has in the early parts of the 20th century and i think in the 19th century as well so, I mean, for, for one thing, in the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, which categorises mental health disorders for a while, homosexuality was in there. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. No, but in we- this case, no. Yeah, that that's very much a modern thing. Yeah, for, for, this, for this character, he was accused of being gay. The reason why will become obvious. Okay. And he was also accused of being mad, but that might have just been that he wasn't really a great king okay fair enough he isn't as obviously and um interestingly mad as charles the sixth in any case mm. well charles the sixth as we said last week is kind of delightful in how obvious and overt his madness is you know i was thinking about him i was thinking i've been listening to a lot of jeeves and worcester <laughs> and everyone oh yeah get that relatable audience in <laughs> look i don't have anything relatable okay <laughs> this doesn't turn up in stranger things <laughs> Oh, it'd be great if it did. Or I'm a Celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> Richard II appears on I'm a Celebrity. <laughs> Just rips the piss out of Matt Hancock. <laughs> it's called I am a Celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, no. So Jeeves and Worcester, though, yeah. they talk a lot about mad uncles. Mm. And I think it's Worcester's mad uncle was just mad to the last, happy to the last and surrounded by rabbits. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Like, that's how people go mad in Jeeves and Worcester is I'd, what I meant. I'd love to be surrounded by rabbits. <laughs> All right, you madman. Off to the <laughs> asylum with you. Well, I mean, we've got one rabbit. I suppose we could just position him around me yes he'll never know the difference <laughs> yeah all right but on to richard the second yeah so richard the second was in a really difficult position when he became king he was sideways sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay he was the grandson of edward the third right now, edward the third was a really big deal in terms of english kings partly because he ruled for 50 years oh that's pretty good which is insanely long for a medieval king yeah like i mean queen victoria ruled for 64 years oh wow so he did very well yeah um <laughs> god we've really been spoiled by queen elizabeth ii she ruled for bloody ages yeah i know <laughs> but still only a little longer than victoria i think like, no one's really made it loads past Edward III. Oh, yeah, I mean, fair enough. Yeah. But during this time, he also kind of defined what it meant to be an English king. Right. Um, he was the one who started the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> Personally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, the whole deal with the Hundred Years' War is that it's partly because... Edward III was kind of part of the Normans-ish. Right. And the Normans, as you know, were French. Technically. (laughs) They were also Vikings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they ruled over a part of France, and therefore they had to owe fealty to the French. Right, yeah. And Edward III goes, absolutely not. We're not part of this anymore. Okay. Um, He says... First up, I should be in charge of France and not the other way around. Yep, that's typical English thinking, yeah. Yep. And second of all, we should speak English. Yep, Because also... they hadn't spoken English before this point, they'd spoken French. Also typical English thinking. Yeah. So Edward III is a big deal. He's when Chaucer comes around. Right. Um, because of the whole English speaking thing. Oh, of course, yeah. And he also changed the way the court spoke from French and Latin into English. Mm. He basically said, everything's English including the Welsh. <laughs> oh, right, I see. Yeah. Oh, the poor Welsh. Yeah, no, they don't have a good time. But um, Edward III had a lot of sons. Okay. A lot of sons. How many are we talking? Oh, God, like six, I don't know. Oh, okay. But it's a problem if you're a king to have that many sons. Yeah, that makes sense. Succession becomes a bit difficult. Yeah. So his oldest son was Edward, better known as the Black Prince. Ooh, that sounds cool. The Black Prince should be super cool. He's the flower of chivalry. Ooh. He married his cousin, Joan of Kent. Mm, well, okay. Super sexy lady, <laughs> according to Chaucer. Yeah, it doesn't make it right. <laughs> eh. And then he died of dysentery. Ah, excellent. Which is kind of sad because he was supposed to be the flower of chivalry and then he just pooped to death, which right. is what happened to a lot of people. <laughs> He sounds a little bit um, Germanicus to me. Yeah. It's kind of like he's so awesome because he didn't really live long enough to disappoint people. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like he started being the fighter of England at the age of about 16 and then he died young. And we saw his castle. We did, yes. Yeah, in Cornwall, near it's somewhere near St. Austell. I can't remember exactly where it is. Yeah, it was a very cool castle. Yeah, and it was uh, painted white. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean... To create contrast. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. You've got the Black Prince and his White Castle. Very true. It's all the races getting along. No, it's got <laughs> nothing to do with race. No. It's just that 
Edward the Black Prince had a cool suit of armor and wanted to make it a whole deal, I think. Yeah. So Edward had left behind his infant son when mm-hmm. he died, and his infant son being Richard ended up being crowned aged 10 years old. Ooh, that's not good. Because basically he was the next in line, technically, after his grandfather. Now, of course, he's got a lot of uncles. Yeah. Yeah, this is a lot of crossover with Charles VI, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, but hey, there's a difference. Oh. Because people really, 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 really did not like John of Gaunt. Who's John of Gaunt in so, this case? John of Gaunt was the third son of Edward III. Right. And he was the most wealthy man possibly in the world at that point, oh, definitely damn. in England. Oh, wow. Okay. So he had married Blanche of Lancaster. Right. And she owned Lancaster, which was yeah. huge. <laughs> I mean, I know it's important because it becomes one of the uh, Wars of the Roses houses. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a big deal. Yeah. And he makes loads of money. Like, literally, my tutors at university told me that at the time, he's considered the wealthiest man in the world. That might just be the Western world or it mm. might just be Europe. But in any case, he's doing well. He's, yeah. And the he's got a bubble too. <laughs> counselors do not like him. Right. So they're like... We're going to do a regency. Okay. But we're not going to let any of his uncles near him. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, considering how badly it went with Charles VI's uncles, probably a good move. This is at the same time as Charles VI. Yeah. They don't have anyone to pick up on at this point. Excellent. So, Sir Simon de Burley, who was Richard II's tutor, mm-hmm. and Robert de Vere became... Um, kind of the main people to be in charge of him. They were some okay. of his privy councillors. Right. They promptly f***ed up massively. Oh, okay. Which is not what you expected, is it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we've really talked about a regency that went well. Mm, no, I think the first one we talked about was Irene, who blinded her son yeah. because she liked being regent so much. Yeah, it's not a great look, is it? No. <laughs> so... Basically, the deal was that they instituted the poll tax. Oh, no. And they did it for several years running. Oh, no. Because of the Hundred Years' War. Oh, no. So they had a lot of wars going on. They were like, you know, we've got to fund this. Yeah. Uh, The poll tax, by the way, is when you tax everybody the same amount of money. Yeah. And that means regardless of income. Mm. This poll tax also included women. Oh, right. So if you had a spinster sister, you would have to pay for her as well. And this caused a lot of strife among the peasantry. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, you've suddenly got a lot of people who, you know, just existed. And suddenly they have to pay for the right to exist. Yeah, that's literally it. Yeah. Um, Is this, by the way, is this the Watt Tyler poll tax? It is. Ooh, I know a thing. What do you know? Uh, I know that Watt Tyler was kind of the head of a peasant's revolt yeah. against the poll tax. Yeah. And that he was... The the revolutionary was basically doing quite well. Yep. And then the establishment were like, hey, what? Why don't we have a little chat and maybe we can sort this out ourselves? Yep. And then they promptly executed him. 
Oh, it's actually slightly worse than that. Oh, okay. So um, you're very close, though. Uh, so this is the Peasants' Revolt Eight out of, 10. of 1381. My right. personal favourite Peasants' Revolt. <laughs> um, we don't know exactly how it was organised because people came from three different counties to London at the same time and no one knows how they did how they organised this. I mean, it could just be that that's how badly they messed up, that lots of people got really angry all at the same time to the point where it's like, we're going to revolt. And then they met up with everyone and it's like, you're revolting too. How it, dare you? It could be. <laughs> um, but the people who were in charge, like, it's called the Peasants' Revolt. They were peasants, but the people who were in charge were really yeomen. Right. Like, it's not just a poor people revolt. It's yeah. like, these people had clout. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the ones, by the way, where... Everyone who was in charge during the Peasants' Revolt, their wives had the best brewery in the village. Oh, amazing. Because that's that's how you can tell that someone's wealthy. I do love how, historically, brewing beer is such a woman's profession. Oh, yeah. No, it's such a feminine thing to do. <laughs> it's just considering how, like... Nowadays, it's so manly. Yeah. And not only that, but like... I like I like real ale. Yeah. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. And it seems very much that things like camera, it's the domain of middle-aged men. Oh, yeah. But, you know, historically, that's not the case. Ah, uh, as with many things, like doctoring. Ah, uh, yeah, of course. So, during this time, Richard was 14 years old. And the peasants sort of converged on London... And Richard agreed with his counsellors that he should ride out personally and go and talk to them. Oh, right. So he did. And he told them, basically, calm down. Didn't work. They had another meeting the next day because they'd done a lot of looting. Right. At Smithfield. And at this point, what Tyler got a personal audience with Richard and his counsellors. Right. But I think it was the Lord Mayor of London dragged Watt Tyler off of his horse. Now, there are a couple of different versions of this story. One is that Watt Tyler may have tried to kill Richard. Right. And the other is just that people saw this wasn't going to go well. Yeah. And the Lord Mayor stabbed him and killed him. The dastard. Yeah. How dare he? But Richard said, like, at this point, the peasants were going to, you know, completely go mm. mad because Watt Tyler's just been killed. And Richard called to them all and said... I am your captain, follow me, and led them away from the scene of Smithfield. <laughs> and they really calmed down and everything got better. Oh, that, there must have been some awkward discussions during and later <laughs> on. It's like, now the king, should we, we're meant to be against him, right? I don't know, he uh, is on a horse. No, but this is the thing. We've got to bear in mind the whole time when we're thinking about Richard that you're not allowed to be against the king specifically. Oh, of course, yeah. So the peasants like the king, right. they hate the nobles. Of course, yeah. Because they still have that idea like, we're coming up to the point in the belief of the divine right of kings. I'm right. not sure they had it yet. This was a really um, James the First era thing to think. Mm. But the idea that God maybe put you in charge was kind of almost there. Yeah, it is Quite a bit Charles the Sixth at this point. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. he's this naive young king. He's doing quite a good job. Yeah. Uh, people really love him. But they don't like some of the people around him. No, that's the issue. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the issue. Yeah. It's not him. This keeps being a factor in everything to do with Richard's life. Right. So, 
the Peasants' Revolt seems to have kind of solidified a few things for Richard. Mm -hmm. Firstly, that he needed to crack on and get down to the business of governing. Yeah. Because, you know, he's 14, he's getting on. (laughs) He's dealing with unexpected body hair and also problems of the country. Um, So... Since the Hundred Years' War is such a big deal, yeah. he decides, let's have a closer alliance against France. <laughs> right. Ah, the English traditions. So, in 1382, when he was 15, yeah. he married Anne of Bohemia. Right. Because Bohemia was one of the big allies against France, and it was closely linked to the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, now, Which, for our listeners who don't know, basically think Germany. Yeah, like literally all of Middle Europe. Yeah. So this relationship lasted for 12 years until Anne died of plague. Oh, no. Um, They had no children. I mean, makes sense, yeah. And he seems to have really loved her to the extent that in Westminster still, you can go and see their tombstone. Um, He was buried in this... I think he asked to be buried at least in the same tomb as Anne of Bohemia. And their arms are slightly raised as though they're holding hands in death. Like sea otters. Like sea otters. That don't want to float away, so yes. they hold hands. Yeah, no, literally, that's how they hold hands on their coffin, on, Aww, on their tomb. Oh, that's adorable. It's very cute. Now, the thing is that because they had no children, that's part of the argument that people use for them, for him being gay. Oh, I see. Right. But it does seem like there was genuine affection there. Yeah. Actually, more than most kings had for their wives. Well, I mean, I suppose you can you can like your hag as a gay man. I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the potential lovers then. Okay. So the nobility in general did not like his choice of friends. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the nobility in general were his lovers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was friends with a commoner, <gasps> How or dare a person he? of the merchant class anyway, who was called Michael de la Pole. It was called Megan of Markle. <laughs> <laughs> Michael de la Pole, who, were, who he later made the Earl of Suffolk. Right. And Robert de Vere, who was his main counsellor. Yeah. Now, Thomas Walsingham, who was one of the main chroniclers of this time suggested that he definitely, definitely had a gay relationship with Robert de Vere. Right. Because of his favouritism towards him. Yeah. But apparently Walsingham had some beef with Richard anyway, so Mm. it's very hot to say. Yeah, sounds like there's a lot of... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Kind of mudslinging going on here. Yeah, really. I mean, Walsingham does not like Richard II. Yeah. Now, in 1386... So four years after he got married, uh, John of Gaunt, his uncle, who was on his second marriage by right. this point, Blanche of Lancaster having died of the plague. <laughs> Everyone died of the plague at this point. All the women's are dropping dead of plague. I mean... Tis the fashion. She also actually wrote a poem about the fact that Blanche had died of plague. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. It's called The Book of the Duchess. Oh, right. And I suppose John of Gaunt has, you know, all her stuff now. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's got all her money. Excellent. And then he got remarried. Right. And this time he got married to a woman who had been deposed, whose father had been deposed from the throne of Castile. Oh, wow. In Spain. Okay. He's just acquiring all the property and lands. Yeah. So I love John of Gaunt. He had a weird life, mm. like delightfully strange. And he was always seen as a bad military leader. Right. 
I think because he was the younger brother of the Black Prince. Right, And the deal was, by the time he got to be 16, all of the major military things that his brother had been able to do had kind of died down a bit in France. So he only got to do things like blowing stuff up, which he was really good at. (laughs) Excellent. I do also know that he was played by Patrick Stewart in The Hollow Crown. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. John of Gaunt is a good Shakespeare character, like for an established older actor. Yes, he has the the sceptered aisle speech. The sceptered aisle. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Love this sceptered aisle, which we could talk about where that comes from, by the way, at the end of this. I'm not sure. I mean, I'll... If I can find it, I'll probably put a bit of it in here. Fair enough. His rash, fierce blaze of riot cannot last, for violent fires soon burn out themselves. This royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty... Seat of Mars. So yeah, John of Gaunt's gone to Spain to try and become the king. Excellent. And this leads to the first crisis. Oh, okay. So basically, Richard wanted to levy a bunch of taxes. Yeah. And he sent Michael Dillapole to go and levy taxes. He had made him his chancellor. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do some wars. Yeah. As you do. As you do. Now, Parliament says, no. Right. Also, we hate Michael de la Pole. You must depose him. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, okay. actually, no, you've got to sack him or we will depose you. Oh, wow. Now... Parliament's getting bolshy. They were. Um, so Richard goes, ugh, fine, and gets rid of de la Pole. Yeah. Um, but goes on a little trail around England. You know, one of those... Um, one of those let's show off how great I am as king kind of events. Yeah. A tour. A tour. A vision quest. <laughs> um, now, during this time, he did perhaps the best thing for himself, right. which is that he went to Chester. Okay. Now, this is important because the county of Cheshire had some of the best archers in England at the time. Right. Um, because they were so close to Wales, and Wales is effectively where the longbow comes from. Right. So they were incredible military people. You, of course, mean the English longbow. No. Yes, that that famous weapon of war that helped the English so much. Ah, it's such an English traditional thing. Yeah, it did after we ganked it off the Welsh. (laughs) We don't talk about that. Well, I do, because I'm part Welsh. (laughs) The blood of Cadwallader runs through my veins. <laughs> Anyways, so he installed De Vere, his potential lover, mm-hmm. um, as the Justice of Chester and managed to get a bunch of Cheshire archers for himself, who he brought back down to London. Right. Now, I know a little bit about the Cheshire archers. Yeah? They were a scrappy bunch of bastards. Yeah, apparently so. Uh, Walsingham complained about them a lot. Right. He basically accused them of raping and pillaging. Oh, Wow. But again, hard to say because Walsingham does not like any of this. I mean, I was thinking about them in battle, but yeah, okay, out of it. Sounds like a bunch of bastards as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, So he also on this tour managed to secure a ruling from Chief Justice Robert Tresillian 
that said that Parliament was unlawful in threatening to depose him for levying taxes. Right, okay. Interesting. My legal brain is working now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so he gets back down to London. Yeah. And one version of the story I've heard is that this was a point where Westminster was being kind of remodelled. Right. And the Parliament, therefore, was held in a sort of marquee. Right. And outside of the marquee, he had stationed all his Cheshire archers. Right. Oh, they just they just need to be somewhere. I mean, it was entirely by chance that they're here. Yeah. And, you know, they've got to make sure their bows are working fine. So they've just got them drawn and yep. knocked and, yep. you know, nothing to do with you. There are versions of this story in which they fired their bows. Oh, I'm sure it was an accident. And there are versions of this story in which they just had them very, like, they had them strung and ready. Yeah. <laughs> um. This did not go well down well. No, I imagine it didn't. <laughs> so, um, Gloucester, Arundel, and Warwick, who were some of the major peers who had most control, yeah, uh, they basically joined forces at this point. Mm. They were like, we've had enough. Now, we can't have enough of the king. Of course. Because that would be treason. Yeah. But we can have enough of his advisors. Yeah. So, they also brought in Henry Bolingbroke... Mm-hmm. who's going to become really important. Henry Bolingbroke was the son of John of Gaunt. Right. And if I know my history, yes. he's going to become Henry the Third. So close. Henry the Fourth. Yes. Excellent. Um, so they also brought in Thomas Mowbray, who was kind of on the same level as Henry Bolingbroke. Mm. And what they did... He was going to become <laughs> Thomas the Nothing. <laughs> they brought in an appeal of treason against De Vere, Wow. Tresillian, Dillapole, and basically everybody who had been advising Richard. Oh, damn. They said, this is treasonous. The way you've been advising the king is so deeply wrong that we are going to execute you. Oh, damn. Yeah. Okay. Um, so at uh, Radcote Bridge, they managed to take on De Vere's forces. Yeah. And he lost. Right. And as a result, he was forced to flee the country. Tresillian and Dillapole were executed for treason. Oh, this was got... not a good time for Richards. No, it's all got a bit serious. Yeah, I know, right? But wait, John of Gaunt returns. Yay! In 1389. And as a result of this, kind of, Richard regained power. Yeah. There's this whole thing, like, he didn't get on with John of Gaunt, but whenever John of Gaunt was in the country, things were okay for the most part. Yeah. It's just as soon as John leaves... Everything goes shite. Everyone just keeps getting distracted because John keeps wanging on about this sceptred isle. <laughs> well, this sceptred isle comes later on. This sceptred isle? So he claimed that all of his previous issues were just because he'd been badly counselled. Mm-hmm. Like, poor advice. And to be fair, he ruled peacefully for eight years. Oh, nice. That's a pretty decent amount of time to rule peacefully. It's a reasonable amount of time. It's longer than... I can only remember his name as Little Boots. Caligula. Yes, it's longer than Caligula. Yeah, that's true. A lot of reigns are longer than Caligula. (laughs) He did not last very long. Well, he's lasted longer than Caligula twice, plus a bit where he wasn't reigning well. Yeah. So he's doing okay, I would say. Yeah. Um, Now, the second crisis. Okay. Um, John of Gaunt's getting on a bit. This sceptred isle... Yep. And for some reason that we do not know, Richard condemned 
Gloucester, Arundel and Warwick to death. Oh, damn. Wow. And we just don't know why. Right. So it's not just like, you know, you got rid of my advisors and I liked them, so now I'm going to get rid of you too. Well, that's what historians think. It's right. basically, you murdered my best friend. Yeah. And possible gay lovers. And possible gay lovers. And now I've got power and I'm yeah. going to take it out. How old is Richard by this point? Oh, God. Um, I think he's about 30. Right. Okay. So, yeah, he's getting that confidence that comes with being 30, I yeah, guess. I get. I guess it's just that whenever I think of Richard II, I always think of him as being a boy king. Yeah. Even well, he though, was, but he was on the throne for a really long time. Yeah, I think this is the thing. I never think of him as an adult. Well, this is actually partly down to him. Um, one of the main pieces of art that's from his era that he is known about still mm-hmm. is the Wilton Diptych. Right. Now, the Wilton Diptych is gorgeous. It's a picture of him surrounded by the different saints who he particularly favoured. Right. Who I think were, like, John the Baptist and a couple of others. Yeah. And then on the other side of the diptych is Mary holding Jesus, surrounded by angels who are all wearing blue. Right. Okay. Twas the fashion at the time. Well, they're wearing blue partly because it's the colour of the Virgin Mary and heaven, and also partly because it was more expensive than gold at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. Blue paint was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get you. Um, So he's like really splashing out on this thing. Yeah. It's also kind of hilarious because he had a personal badge, which you can still see around the country today. Right. Which is the Royal Heart, as in Heart, H-A-R-T, the deer. Yeah. The Royal Heart, you'll be able to recognise by the fact that it's got a crown around its neck looking like a collar. Oh, okay, yeah. And whenever you see that, that's the symbol of Richard, and that's on a lot of pub signs. (laughs) Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Now, every single one of the angels in the Wilton Diptych is wearing his badge. Excellent. Because that's how kind of narcissistic he is. But to be honest, I love it. Yeah. It's so gaudy and (laughs) hilarious. (laughs) Uh, this is also where the sceptered isle might come from. This sceptered isle? Oh, okay. Because Jesus, in his hand, is holding a scepter, which he's offering to Richard. Right. And if you peek very closely at the sort of orb at the top of the scepter, you can see a little green triangle that seems to represent England. Oh, right. So we think that this sceptered isle might come from the Wilton Diptych itself. Right. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Excellent. So, but the thing is that when he made the Wilton Diptych, he was in his mid-twenties. Yeah. But he still depicts himself as a child. Right. And that's kind of the image that we still have of him, I think. Okay, that makes sense then. I'm still going to keep imagining a boy. Oh, yeah, fair enough. I mean, he is only a... Actually, he's maybe about our age at this point. Well, that would put him in his thirties. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... He sent these lords to their deaths. And then something kicks off in his court. And this is actually how the play Richard II begins. Right. The deal is that Bolingbroke approaches Richard and says that Thomas Mowbray had told him that they were next in line for royal retribution. Right. Because they had been involved in the previous kind of conspiracy against him. Oh, it's all very mean girls. It is, isn't it? (laughs) Now, Mowbray denies this, because if he had said it, that would be treason and he would be executed. Yeah. Parliament said the way to resolve this is through trial by combat. Okay. 
like basically we're going to have a fight yeah and in the play by shakespeare they are scheduled to do the fights mm-hmm. and then richard calls it off at the last minute right and he says actually i don't want you to have this fight because that would be a terrible thing to lose both of you mm. he so says instead we're gonna dig a hole one yeah. of you is gonna go in the hole <laughs> The other one's going to have club. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense unless you've listened to our previous episodes. <laughs> yes, this is true. Which episode is it? Uh, that's I can't remember the name I gave it, but it's husband and wives fighting each other from a hole. Yeah. <laughs> Which was a historical thing, but not in England. Yeah. And definitely not between Bolingbroke and Mowbray. And also possibly just didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a lot of stuff got noted down in books because people thought it was funny. Yeah, this and is And now true. we go, ah, oh, this definitely happened. In this case... He said that they should both be exiled. Oh, right. Okay. So Richard said that Mowbray should be exiled for life. Yeah. And Bolingbroke should be exiled for 10 years. Mm. But he also promised that should John of Gaunt die, Bolingbroke, who was his oldest son, would inherit. Right. But still had to stay in France. Well, he has to come back to inherit. So this is a whole problem. I see. Right. And then in 1399, John of Gaunt died. Yeah. So Richard took all his money. Of course. And invaded Ireland. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I don't think this was the first time he invaded Ireland, but it was the stupidest time he invaded yeah. Ireland. Um, effectively, he had all of John of Gaunt's money. He thought that he was entitled to it as the king. Yeah. And he didn't say anything to Bolingbroke about right. this. Yeah. Who's still in exile at this point. He's in exile in France. Yeah. So it's this kind of behaviour from Richard that basically means that some historians still think that he had some kind of mental health issue. Okay. Shakespeare depicts him as being completely batty. Right. Like um, there's a point later on where he's certainly been defeated and he says to his followers, come, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of kings. That's that Blackadder line. It's the Blackadder line. (laughs) It was actually, um, this is a side note, but when they originally performed this play, it was the signal for followers of one of Elizabeth's favourites to rebel in the streets. Oh, damn. So it was a whole thing. Oh, wow. But that's a story for another time. Mm. Um, in any case, there was this belief that he was a bit mad just yeah. because he was making such stupid mistakes. Yeah. But there's some revisionism on this, which I kind of believe in. Um, basically, people have pointed out that his behavior suggests that he was trying to become a leader of a state in the same way that the Tudors were. Right. So when we think about the early modern period, this was the point where a lot of kings were starting to kind of consolidate their power. Yeah. So with Richard, I've kept mentioning all these different people who owned massive tracts of land in England and technically had more power than him. Like John of Gorn had way more money and Gloucester and Arundel and Warwick all had kind of almost as much power as the king. Mm, Makes sense. I mean... We used to live near Arundel. We've seen it. It's a lovely place. It's gorgeous. Yeah. I mean... Big the, castle as well. <laughs> the Earl of Arundel is also the Duke of Norfolk, so we can't escape him. <laughs> well, I didn't actually know that. <laughs> oh, my God. It's actually true. It's still true. We're trapped by the aristocracy. <laughs> yep. Nothing changes. Anyways, so there's a suggestion, though, that his way of thinking is just basically a bit too 
ahead of its time. Mm. Like, if it had been 200 years later, he would have just been acting like Henry VIII. Right. He's Michael J. Foxing this in Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you don't get this, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> I mean, they won't, but sure. <laughs> So this is where our story weirdly joins back up with that of last week's. Yay! Because um, Richard having invaded Ireland means Henry Bolingbroke is sitting in Paris seething. Yeah. Because his money is all going to the stupid war. Yep. And he's not allowed to go and reclaim his inheritance, which, you know, is the right of every nobleman. Yeah. But he is sitting in France, which is very close to England. He is. And in June 1399, for a brief period, the Duke of Orléans gained control of Charles VI's court. Was this through demonic magic? Probably. Yeah. And he let Henry Bolingbroke go. Excellent. So as a result, Henry invaded England. With the power of demons at his side. Absolutely. Well, with the power of every single member of the nobility, who were all now equally cheesed off at Richard because if you start to take someone's land they think you'll take my land next and Mm. this is the point where big tracts of land is like the whole deal of being a medieval gentleman yeah so they managed to defeat Richard at Flint Castle and he was imprisoned and probably starved to death at Pontefract Castle at the age of 33. Oh, no. Yeah, it's possibly the grimmest way that any king has gone, but it's a super important story for English history. This was the first time that um, a king had been kind of deposed in English history. This was the first time we went, absolutely not, like, the way that you're behaving is atrocious. Yeah. And it's kind of important because in terms of the way that he was acting generally, it wasn't too bad it's just that he had the wrong way of thinking really Mm, he annoyed the wrong people yeah like whenever john of gaunt was around stable it was a stable country everything was fine um they created a peace with france at one point or a truce um he married one of the princesses of france later on after his first wife died yeah um the whole thing's a bit creepy because she was so young. I think she was eight years old at the time. Ooh. But it's like not, almost certainly nothing actually happened. At yeah. this. But apparently he was very, you know, charming and nice to her. And gay as a box of frogs. <laughs> well, this is... In the, in the Hollow Crown series, um, Richard II is portrayed as really gay. Yeah. And also really flamboyant, mm. which was something that people like Thomas Walsingham accused him of, like spending all his money on fancy clothes yeah well in the hollow crown series he's played by ben wishaw yeah he is and if you're going to be richard ii played by ben wishaw you want to look fabulous oh absolutely and he <laughs> does look fabulous i think he's kind of taking off a whole michael jackson thing or something <laughs> i can see that i swear yeah. he's got a monkey <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately he was just not the best king probably yeah. And I think he might have been a bit more like our current notion of Caligula, but less insane. Just in, he had this particular way of thinking. He Mm. thought, I am king, therefore I should be in charge and able to do what I like. And that just wasn't true at the time. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, well, technically the rules allow me to do this. And everyone else is just like, yes. (laughs) But also a resounding No. no. 
Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4 and suggest any episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. If you want to help support us and help us grow our network, um, the best thing that you can do is give us a five-star review on your listening app of choice. And thank you as always to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in this podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and don't randomly invade Ireland. Bye! Bye!